things I think I struggled with in telling my story was that I didn't know if I was through it yet. I don't feel like I'm 100% completely healed of that story. And I also worried about what other people would think. And that was just something I had to come to terms with. I realized that if everybody had that fear and if everybody waited for all the people to die before they could write their memoir, then there would never be any encouragement for those who are walking through the muck of healing from their past. Welcome to another episode of Right of Your Life, where life happens and life storytelling transforms it. Our show is brought to you by lifestorytelling.com. And guess what? You don't have to be a writer to write your life stories. Lifestorytelling.com will teach you how. If you've been through hell and lived to tell about it, or your family skeletons are poking out of the closet, you'll want to check it out at lifestorytelling.com. If you met our guest today, her joy would really confuse you. Who she's become in light of tragedy is a testimony to Jesus' ability to transform a broken life. Mary DeMuth is a child of three divorces and a victim of sexual assault at a young age. After her father's death, Mary wanted to end her life in her teens. But in the 10th grade, she heard about Jesus and she knew she wanted to chase after him for the rest of her life. And thankfully, he chased her. Today, Mary is the author of 30 books, including her latest, The Day I Met Jesus, The Revealing Diaries of Five Women from the Gospels. She has spoken around the world about God's ability to uncage lives, bringing needed freedom to her audiences. Mary, welcome to the show. And tell us a little bit more about your background. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. Yeah, well, I have been a published writer since 2005, and prior to that, I spent about 15 years writing in obscurity. So growing up, I didn't know that I was a writer, but I actually was just writing all the time. I was writing in journals and and really became an English major by default. I had been a math major, and then I just got tired of solving problems, which is kind of funny. <laughs> um, I just wanted to go back to the creative side of me and then taught school for a couple of years. And then once I had my first child, there was just something inside of me that thought, I need to birth a book. I've birthed a child. Now I need to birth a book. And that process took about 15 years before that first book was published. So it was a long, long journey. I don't regret it at all. But when I meet with writers today, so many of them want instantaneous success. And I have to tell them the length of my story is is the truth and that it does take time. Right. It does take a long time. Now, tell me about your latest book that you're working on right now. The one that just released is called The Day I Met Jesus, and it's told from the perspective of five actual women from the New Testament. And I am kind of a a weird author in that I write nonfiction and fiction. Several of my books are novels. So this book is actually five stories. And I wrote the the narrative side of that. I wrote the fiction side of The Woman at the Well and and several others. And then I had a co-author for that book. And he wrote kind of the walking it out section of, okay, so now we know the story of this woman and how Jesus met them. Now what do I do with that? And how do I apply that to my life? So that one just came out. I just finished um, the finishing touches on a book about worth. And I also just finished a novel that's being shopped right now. So I don't know what will happen to that one. I know the the worth one's been bought and will come out in a year, but I, I don't know about the novel. Can you share the name of that title, The Worth Book? I can't yet. My agent would kill me. Oh, darn. <laughs> <laughs> it's a secret. 
Now, in your writing, I noticed I've been a Mary DeMuth fan for years and years. I don't even remember. Oh, I do remember where I first heard about you was at the North Texas Christian Writers Conference. Oh, yeah, yeah. That's yeah, that was probably five years ago or so, maybe. But And I thought, wow, this person has a very special story to tell. And you're also a pretty prolific writer. You've written quite a few things, like you said, fiction and nonfiction. And a lot of it is really from the heart. You speak from a troubled childhood, difficult childhood. And so that's what I wanted to ask you about today. Tell me about how your childhood comes out in your writing. Well, I think uh, it can't help but come out because I've had a like many people, I've had a difficult childhood and and so much of our lives and even research will prove that so much of you is formed in those first few years of your life. And so one of the things I think I struggled with in telling my story very openly was that I didn't know if I was through it yet in a way, you know, like I don't feel like I'm 100% completely healed of that story And I also worried about what other people would think, um, particularly the people in my life who are family members who are still alive. And that was just something I had to come to terms with. I realized that if everybody had that fear and if everybody waited for all the people to die before they could write their memoir, then there would never be any encouragement for those who are walking through the muck of healing from their past. We'd always have to wait for all the people to die. (laughs) And so... (laughs) In my particular instance, I decided that I didn't decide. I felt like God wanted me to write these books that were very open. And so I had to let go of that fear. It stayed with me. I mean, you never never really get rid of the fear of what your family thinks. But I had to kind of overcome that to be able to put words on a page and realize that those words were going to be published. It's a very tenuous and scary place to be. But once it was done and once it was published, I didn't oddly didn't think a second more about it. It was very freeing and I knew that I had told the truth. And so I knew that it was going to set people free. So that joy kind of trumped all the fear that I'd had in the process of writing. Wow. So you were a child of three divorces, you said, and a victim of sexual assault. And your father also died when you were young. So did you write just one book about your childhood or was it multiple? Um, It kind of comes out in a lot of books. The first book that I wrote where I first told my story was uh, Building the Christian Family You Never Had, which was a Waterbrook title. And I just wrote one chapter of my story in that book, and I was it paralyzed me. I was ready to send the book back. I was so afraid. But writing that one chapter was enough to give me the courage to write Thin Places, which is really where everything is. That's kind of, if you want mm-hmm. the story of me, it's in that, um, in that memoir. And then it, the story comes back it, when I'm talking about self-worth, or I'm talking about spiritual warfare, or I'm talking about forgiving other people who have hurt you. My story comes out because there was so much work that had to be done in healing from that particular story. And do you think by writing that the fact of writing healed or were there other factors as well? I have never been much of a author who sells a lot and I have had to come to terms with that. But what has happened is that every book that I write, God has used it to heal me. And so I kind of laugh at the whole thing because I think, you know, whether these books sell or not, God's using them to change me. Right. And I always kind of wonder when I start another book, what's he going to say this time? So there's something about the creative process, I believe, that God uses 
in our own lives just for our benefit. So some people out there may be thinking, well, I just have to write my memoir. Well, you may have to write your memoir. It may not be for public consumption like mine was, but God's going to do some really cool things in your heart and through your heart because you have put it down on paper. Right. And so Thin Places is your official memoir. Do you have something you can read to us from that book? Sure. Um, This is from the chapter about my father. And it goes as this. One ordinary fifth grade day, I'm doing something rudimentary like fractions or spelling or reading when the secretary's voice blares over the intercom. Will Mary come to the office right away? The undercurrent of alarm in her voice startles me. I pick up my things and leave the classroom. I meander, somehow knowing that at the end of the outdoor walkway, a terribly dark secret will be revealed and my life will never be the same. I walk alone down the hall, noticing the brick patterns, counting my steps. Nearly to the office, the thought occurs to me, my father has died. I'm not sure how or why I know this. Perhaps the brick-lined hallway is a thin place where the Almighty whispers me a tender warning. As soon as I see my mother's face, I know. In our idling green Dotson, parked with its nose facing the office, my mother puts words into my intuitions. Your father is dead. Because my mom has married twice more since being married to Jim, I feel the need to clarify. Which father? Jim, who I visit every other weekend, whose tall, lanky frame I inherited, my first stepdad who took apart engines in our living room, or my current stepfather who recently married my mom. I know in my gut who it is. Still, I ask, which one? Jim, she says. My mom doesn't know what to do about grief, doesn't know how to console a 10-year-old in shock. She does not touch me. Instead, she drives directly to Jaffco, an electronics store of the 1970s. Pocket calculators are the newest thing. Pick one, she says, her eyes wet, her arms crossing her chest like armor. So I touch the small metal buttons of a calculator and I hand it to her. The clerk puts it in a sack, hands it to me. I know I'll be the first kid in my class to own one, the first kid with a pocket calculator and no father. Wow. Was that piece about the moment you learned about your father's death, was that hard to write? No, because I, by the time I was in my 30s, I was speaking and I was beginning to tell the story. And so I'd had some practice in verbalizing the story. And I had also throughout my life, once I had met Jesus, I had some great friends who I told the story to several times. And so it becomes very easy for me to share these stories because I've said them so many times and now I've written them so many times that it wasn't difficult at all. But the first time you do it, it's, it's of course, excruciating. You don't want to let your secret out. You don't want to tell people, you know, things and it's embarrassing or, you know, whatever your story is. Right. It's never easy the first time, but it gets so much easier. It, it becomes like slicing bread after that. It's something you, it, you know how to do. And so let me ask you, when you first started wanting to share the story, write it down or tell it to somebody, what did that look like? I mean, where, did you just start writing one day or feel the need to put something down on paper? What instigated that? Well, I've always been a journal writer. So all that stuff was already in words. I had already written it down. And then I would initially, when I, when I first became a Christian, I, I just would tell everybody my story. I was this oversharer, like that really awkward person at a party that says everything on their mind (laughs) because I was so desperate to be healed and I didn't know how to get healed. And I did, I had this, the weight of the story crammed inside of me and I didn't know how to wield it or, or, or share it. And so I overshared it for a while. 
and eventually learned that was not wise. You don't just share your story with random people. But then in college, I began to share it with trusted people who then prayed for me. And that's where most of the healing that occurred from the past happened to me was in that circle of prayer after sharing with some trusted people. So my encouragement to others is if they haven't let their story out yet, they need to, they can start by just journaling it. That's a very safe way to begin. And then second, by sharing it with someone who's very, very trusted, who will not take your story lightly or diminish it or dismiss it. Right. Because the first draft that you get out, whether it's journal or something else, it doesn't have to be pretty. It probably is not pretty. Even the best writers don't have something that's really nice and polished down first. It takes lots of revisions. Like you said, even if you don't want to necessarily publish this, it's healthy to get it out on paper and then to tell somebody. One of the things I love about getting your your newsletter, your emails, you always say, mind if I pray for you. It seems so personal. I'm like, yes, yes, you can. <laughs> so how did that particular piece start? Yeah, I don't, I don't know. It just did. And I just have a heart for the people on my newsletter list. And I know that so many of them have some very dark struggles and deep stories or are walking through hard times. And so when I started writing that newsletter, that piece of praying for my readers just started to evolve. And then it became mind if I pray for you. And then it just became a habit. And I think a good one, because I think people's lives are changed when they are prayed for. Mm -hmm. And I think also people get to know me better as they see how I pray. You, you get to know people when you hear them pray. And that's my goal for my readers is that it's a tribe of people. It's a, a group. It's folks I shepherd. I'm not their pastor per se, but I still feel the responsibility of shepherding them. And part of shepherding people is to want their welfare. And part of wanting their welfare is to pray. And your newsletters and your blog posts, they are very personal. And you share some of your struggles with your readers and almost every single post. Does that get exhausting for you or is that more therapeutic for you? Both. Um, it is. I mean, sometimes I think, why can't I just be a design blogger? <laughs> <laughs> you know, I like to decorate my house too. I could do that. That would be just great. I could take pictures and it would be super fun, but that's not the space God's called me to. And I, I recently did a, a poll of my readers and I had about 200 people respond, which was really cool. So I graphed what they said in, in terms of what is the first word that comes to mind when you think of me? Because I was just trying to figure out, you know, what, what I offered them and the first word by far, by a margin of 10 to 1, was authenticity. Mm -hmm. So I knew that there was something that was unique about me that was reaching something in them and that God was using my authenticity. And so, yes, there are times I get tired of being so vulnerable, but then I get emails. I got one today, very long, several pages of someone who is just finally, for the first time at 44 years old, is telling her story. And one of my books helped her do that. And I, and I think if I had not been vulnerable in that book, she would not have known that you could be. And mm -hmm. perhaps she would not have shared her story and let it out so that she could heal. So then I think, well, this is worth it. It is worth me taking one for the team, so to speak. I feel like I'm a pioneer a lot of times where I am going before people and doing the hard things so that the pathway is not so scary for the people behind me. Well, I like that. And I think 
each one of us has a story to share that will help somebody else. That's the important thing is to get that story out. Number one, because it can help somebody else, but it helps you as well. Can you tell us any lessons that you learned by writing about yourself, your life? Well, I've learned uh, one hard lesson I learned was not to process my pain about other people on a blog. (laughs) Even if it was (laughs) bailed, usually they figure it out and it's really dumb and awkward. I should just go to them first. And that was, I've learned that, you know, the hard way early on in my writing career. I've actually been a blogger since 2004. So I'm a veteran blogger. Yay. Okay. Over like 2,500 posts, millions of words. I started it when we lived in France and I wanted people to just kind of know what our lives were like then. And then it just evolved into my website and all that kind of stuff. But yeah, I think you have to be cautious about being angry on the internet because it's very hard to convey tone, both in email and on a blog. And so I've learned that that's hard, but I also have learned that when I am the very most vulnerable is when I get interaction on my posts. And so not that I run around hoping for interaction and I'm insecure and I just vomit on the page so people will interact with me. I'm sure that that would have been the case earlier on, but no, it's that I know that those are the kinds of things that touch the heart. And so if something is going on in my life that is now processed through, I'm then able to share it. But I also would caution people just on a sideline. It's important that you process some of your pain before you give it to public consumption. I I ran into a woman at a conference once and her divorce was fresh, like it just happened. And she's like, well, I want to write this book for other women who've gone through the same thing. And I said, well, how long ago has it been? And she goes, oh, just a couple of days ago, I got the final divorce papers. And I said, well, keep a journal of what you've gone through and then use that journal later as fodder for what you're writing. But right now you are only going to vomit on readers. You're only going to be processing your pain and that is of no help to anybody. It's awesome for you, but we don't want to hear it. I'm not that we're not empathetic, but in order for it to be helpful to us, you have got to go through some healing first. Right. Well, healing and that's where you learn some of those lessons when you can reflect back on on what's happened, because we all have lessons to learn too. So you can learn your own lessons and that's what you can share perhaps with other people. Exactly. So do you write every single day? I think so. When I'm under a deadline, I definitely write um, like two to 5,000 words a day, Monday through Friday. I try not to work on the weekends, but sometimes like on Sunday, a blog post will come to me and I'll just sit down and write it. But that's pretty rare. I try to reserve it just for the times when I have work hours. Mm-hmm. And you have formed a couple of partnerships. And you mentioned one of your partnerships that's with Frank Viola with your last book. Right. Do you have other partnerships that you formed? I'm a part of a mastermind group uh, who are a bunch of authors and marketers. And so that is kind of like no one really knows about that. Like We don't advertise ourselves or talk about it publicly necessarily. But that's been a really great thing. And I would encourage any writer to consider forming a group of five to ten fellow writers like that. We meet on Google Plus Hangouts uh, once every other week. And mm-hmm. our structure is that we, on one of those weeks during the month, someone teaches us something. And on one of the other week, one of us is sitting on what we call the hot seat and we are able to share something we're struggling with in our career and the other people can help us. And it's been 
completely invaluable. And I also speak for Compassion International in college campuses. Uh So I've partnered with them as well. I like that. You go to and you speak at writers conferences. Yes. Would you encourage writers or people who are potential writers or, or maybe thinking about it to go to one of those right away or start writing on their own first? Or how would you encourage someone to get into writing about their life? Yeah, I always recommend a conference because you're going to get all this information that you need to know about publishing, whether it's self-publishing or traditional publishing in one place in one weekend, and you're going to rub shoulders with industry professionals and other writers. And so whether, wherever you are on your journey, I would encourage you to go to a conference. That's where I got my start. Uh, I met my first agent at a conference and I don't, you know, I wouldn't have the story that I have today with all these books had I not been to one. So yes, I absolutely Absolutely. Yes, sure. Of course, write and do your homework and learn all that stuff. But you're going to learn so much at a conference that it's really an invaluable experience as a writer. And I'm assuming you can just Google writing conferences in Dallas or writing conferences in New York, correct? Yes. Just to find also, a, a good... You know, a lot of the great ones I've flown to, it might just be good to see what's available maybe in the spring or the summer when you have some time and then uh, hop on a plane and go. Do you have a writing resource that you particularly go to each time, like Scrivener or any type of writing assistant? I have some great friends, novelists particularly, who adore Scrivener, and I just have not gotten on it yet. So I'm still using good old boring Microsoft Word. Ah. In the beginning, I just would devour a lot of writing books. Of course, we all know Stephen King's on writing and Bird by Bird by Anne Lamott. And yes, uh, I mean, those are just kind of the classics that we've read on writing well by William Zinsser. There's just some great books. Stein on writing, Character and Viewpoint is another one if you're a novelist. So I, I've read a lot of books. The first five pages by Noah Lukeman is an important book to read if you are writing a book. You want that editor or agent to read your first one page and just to be chomping at the bit because they're so excited about what's going to happen next. So there's a lot of resources out there. I share a couple of those. I think there's a list of them in a book I wrote called The 11 Secrets of Getting Published. And that book is available on Amazon. And that book is everything I know about publishing in one place. That's pretty cool. Now you have a free resource you want to share with our listeners, and that is a book, a free ebook, what to do after people poop on you, (laughs) right? (laughs) How did you come up with that? (laughs) Well, interestingly enough, I wrote a book called The Wall Around Your Heart, and that was basically the gist of that book. And I, I jokingly told the publisher, I said, I think this book needs to be called What to Do After People Poop on You. And they were like, Um, We don't put poop on covers, so, (laughs) but the idea kept sticking. So I took some of the concepts out of that book that I wrote and placed them in this little ebook because I think that's something we all struggle with, particularly when someone we look up to or someone we admire hurts us, it it can sideline us for years. And so it's just a simple step-by-step method using the acronym pooping (laughs) to, uh, (laughs) To help you get over relational heartache in order to not live a closed off, bitter life. Right. And we'll share links to that and how to get that on our show notes. 
Well, Mary, thank you so much for sharing your information and your story and your background. And and we will send people to marydemuth.com, D-E-M-U-T-H.com, so they can read more about you. Awesome. Thank you so much. Great information from Mary DeMuth. Show notes can be found at rightofyourlife.com slash Mary DeMuth. There you'll find links to the items mentioned, and we have a free download for you entitled, I Should Have Raised My Hand. At the end of each episode, I peek into the Life Story Toolkit and share information on one particular tool that you might consider using if you're writing or would like to start writing about your life. The Life Story Toolkit is sponsored by lifestorytelling.com, where you can find your life theme, discover where to start writing, and craft your life into a compelling story. This episode's Life Story Toolkit features Trello. Trello is a collaboration tool that organizes your projects into boards, and in one glance, Trello tells you what's being worked on, who's working on what, and where something is in a process. People use Trello for every kind of project imaginable. You can start a project on your laptop, add to it on your mobile phone, and later share information from your tablet. It's a calendar, a collaboration tool, and an organization tool, a project manager, and more. There's a great free option with unlimited boards, lists, cards, members, checklists, attachments, and all kinds of things. There are other options that integrate with your other favorite online tools like Salesforce, Slack, Google Drive, Dropbox, Evernote, Google Hangouts, and lots more. Those start at $8.33 a month. It's a great tool, so head over to Trello.com and check it out. That's all we have for today. In our last episode, Brett Guida discussed connecting with people through your story and how truth might change with time and distance. So if you have a particular truth from your past that you'd like to explore, you might want to go back and have a listen. Next episode, we'll interview Morgan McDonald, who talks about holding your story at arm's length. So stay tuned for that. If you liked this podcast, we'd love it if you shared it with friends and family. You can find the share button on just about any podcast player you're listening to right now. Go ahead, try it. You can also head over to rightofyourlife.com and share it from there. We're on Pinterest, Facebook, and just about anywhere you can hold a great virtual conversation. My handle is Right of Your Life. This show is put together by consulting producer Nick Jaworski at podcastmonster.com and myself, Stacy Curtis. We hope that today you have the right of your life.